which I've gotten busier. I say that only because I have to I have to leave today uh, before the town gets in full swing because I have another appointment somewhere else. But um, but I was really I really wanted to come and just to kind of to say a few words about the open book community and 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 the problems that we have. Now, and of course, the, the, the object, the only object, the only goal of the Book Committee is to make sure that all of the various cultures that comprise America get represented in the publishing world. They aren't. They definitely aren't. They really, really, really aren't. Uh, there are a few black people and then lesser numbers of other, you know, uh, minorities, ethnic minorities, whatever. Um, Publishing world, but it's mostly white. It's very white. I once went to the uh, AR, the uh, Association of American Publishers in Puerto Rico. Everybody was not white in Puerto Rico, but everybody of the publishers, all the CEOs were white. There's hundreds of people. You know, but the, the fact is, is that it's dominated by children. And the problem we have, you see, the problem that I have is that the publishing industry. Uh, in New York specifically, is one of the most important cultural institutions in, in, in America because they hold the culture of America. All of the life, all of the history, all of like the you know the films and the, the theater, all this stuff goes through uh, mainstream publishing. And you have these people who um, are on one hand liberals as a rule, and on the other hand racist. That they're liberals as much as you know they march with Martin Luther King, you know, they give to the NAACP, and their daughter has a boyfriend brown colored, and things like that. And they once with Nelson Mandela when they publish his book. But when it comes to hiring somebody, you know, else, you know, like I was thinking, well, how come I couldn't have one for Nelson Mandela? Well, because you're not one of us, they said, and you're not going to be, you know, and and like that's just the way it is. Um, the problem is, it's great because it's, it's very, very, very tricky. Um, um, I think it was uh, Skip Gates, you know, Henry Louis Gates Jr. wrote an article recently the Renaissance to end all Renaissances. Kind of fun idea and work. And also, I think not true because, you know, to have a Renaissance that is like to have things really change, to really, you know, tra transform into something new. What the only thing that's happened with, uh, I'll say black people because it's something, but I heard the people of color published is that they're published. I'm published. Terry Millen is published. A whole bunch of other people are published. But they, um, that's right now. And everybody thinks that right now is forever. But there are a whole bunch of black people I know who were published in the 60s and the 70s and the 50s. They were all forgotten. All the people publishing forgot them because they weren't part of their group. They didn't know who they were, so they were just gone. We could be gone just as easily. So the only idea, the idea of having a real renaissance, a real transformation, a real change, is to make sure that the people who work in publishing represent all the different people in America. And, and to go further, not, I, I'm not like suggesting that, that uh, Simon and Schuster go out and hire Puerto Rican editors to edit Puerto Rican books. This is not, I mean, this is kind of a strange thing that you know, they get out of so they don't need a Puerto Rican editor. We don't have any Puerto Rican The thing is that we do need you know, Puerto Rican editors because the idea is that all of us contribute to the language, and the language is what's being controlled by publishing, and the language really is our, our culture and, and where it's going. 
And so, and so the idea I think here today is to is to to talk to people about one those opportunities which do exist in publishing, uh, making aware of the Open Book com uh, Committee, which hopefully will be help helpful in, in like people who are interested in publishing, getting them in touch with various publishers. Also, talking about the problems in, uh, in publishing, the, the things that uh, that are bad, and and the reasons that that we should ultimately be involved. Now, the other thing that, that I want to say that that I think that I think is important just just to be known to be, to be put out in the world is that it's also our responsibility. I mean, to say I'm talking about myself, uh, writers, and also you know the, the other people on, on the on the panel who are involved in it. Yeah. When I look at at the world of publishing and, and specifically African American writers, if you put all of us together, the successful black American writers, Morris and Alice Walker, Chester Millen, and Harris, Walter Mosley, you know, and it's like, you know, there's a couple of dozen people, you know, at a certain level in American life. We must make like twenty million dollars a year for publishers who want to hire black people. That's a wild thing. But we just go out and go in. It's like, well, there's my book. Native American, 
and you work with Simon Schuster. Well, anything, any thought in your head is different than white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America, which it probably is. You will have no basis there. This is true. I don't want to get anybody to think that Israeli Jews are wonderful. If you have a thought that doesn't follow in the line of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America, they're not going to understand. This is the problem. This is one of the things that we have to deal with. One of the things that that Ken does is we have a, a peer group that meets people from various houses come together to talk about their problems because in in um, in mainstream publishing they don't know from you. If you're a black woman, you say I want to write a book about hair. They say hair. White women don't need books about hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they think they're right. You know, they're not being racist. They are, but they don't think they're being. They think you know, oh, this young person is confused. And if you're absolutely alone, then somebody can say, oh, you know, she's right. You know, my mother said, yeah, well, your mother's a white woman too, so she's not, she thinks the same thing. And so there, there are a lot of problems, but the problems are worth being faced because the issue is, another thing, I guess I said in this article, which I think is very true, and I'll stop that. No, no, that's okay. The, the other thing that I said in this article, which I, I think is very true, a lot of people who are not part of that majority race in America really deeply and fully believe it's a white man's world. And in saying this, they think really white man means white American man's world. But it's no longer an American world. It's like an international world. We're involved in an international economy and an international culture. Black people in America specifically have more effect on that culture than probably any other single group in the world. And the thing is, is what we have to know and remember that we have a responsibility to make that world in our own image and make sure that the truth exists in that and that's the, the, the purpose for the open book community. And I said one more thing. Oh, I just said one more, one more, more thing. One more image, because, I, because uh, uh, again, now David was saying that we have a problem with the open book community because you have a lot of very individual thinkers involved. If you sit more than three individual thinkers at a table, there will be no agreement at the end of And there never is. Uh, it's like in The Godfather, when uh, Michael Corleone kills McCluskey, the captain, and he has to go, and the police shut down all of the activities of the um, of the mob. If you remember reading the book, all the mob was shut down except for the numbers runners in Harlem, because the police couldn't figure out how the numbers and runners in Harlem worked. They said, "How do those people do that?" And so they got. And so that was one business that kept making money. Actually, kept the family afloat while they were in all these troubles. So this is a both a good and a bad thing. Us. One thing is, is we have a great deal of trouble working together. But if in a kind of a unity of awareness that we keep thinking, I'm working to make this happen, it starts to work in resonance with other people. So the other day when I was at the Brown uh, Double Day Dell meeting with their CEO for another reason, he said, you, you wrote that article, right, about the black people not getting jobs. And I went, yes. Well, I've been talking to my head of employment, and you should go talk to him. And I went to talk to this guy, and this guy says, we want to start hiring people of color. How can we do it? And we set up a meeting. So the idea is that some things are happening, though I wish they would happen a little bit more in a more, like you're saying, David, in a more organized fashion, more in that way. It's very difficult because, you know, we don't come necessarily from, the, like, a monolithic background like publishing does. All the publishers talk exactly like, you know, publishers say, right? Well, a good black person won't stay with us because a good black person can get a job anywhere. And then you look at them and say, well, can't a good white person get a job? And they, and they just shut up. 
You know? Or you said, they said, well, you know, there's very low salaries when you when you enter. I said, well, don't you pay white people low salaries? Don't they, they can live in, but black people can't? And they said, well, we can't hire senior people because there are no senior people. And I said, well, Jackie on NASA, she hired her. <laughs> so what you have is a, is a kind of a self-deluded racism on the behalf of publishers. That's what we're fighting against. Uh, that's not exactly what we're saying here today. What we're saying here today, I think, is the fact that who we are, what we do, and that we would like to, to if you would think about it, be included in that. But I'm telling you all the bad things about it because, well, it's that world. Anyway, so now Jim's going to speak to you. Well, anyway, I'm Jim Moser, and I'm not in blackface, and uh, so that we're going to be talking about uh, the possibilities today as well as the problems, and, uh, and we're, I think, going to have a pretty lively discussion, a pretty fun discussion, and uh, I am uh, executive editor at Globe Atlantic. Grove Atlantic is a result of a merger between two houses, Grove Press and Atlantic Monthly Press, and there are two imprints there, and we published, or we have published in the past, many very exciting authors like Henry Miller, and Brett, and Janae, and, and Fanon, and Artaud, and William Burroughs, and all those beats, and Tom Stoppard, and Beckett, and Pinter, and John Reggie, and nowadays we publish authors like Kathy Acker, and now Yoshimoto, and Kisabro Owe, a lot of foreigners. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, Jim, uh, John O'Brien, and Norman Mailer, and Tom Stoppard, and Beckett, and Pinter, and John Reggie. And so uh, our back list is a pretty heavy 60s list. Our front list is a pretty heavy retro 60s list. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I think that one of the things that um, you'll find about publishing is that in some ways, and in certain areas, the publishing industry is sort of a retro 60s industry. And while uh, 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 Walter has already touched upon some of those tales from the dark side, uh, and there will be a lot more to come, uh, it is something that uh, we talk about and, and, and are very concerned about. And sort of we're very concerned about sort of making progress in a number of areas. And one of the areas in which we are very desperate to make progress in is in this whole question of diversity that Walter has talked about so very eloquently in the field. Um, I uh, came to this industry in a kind of unusual way, but I think everyone comes to this industry in an unusual way, and I think you'll hear a lot of stories about that. Um, one of my old bosses, Sam Vaughn, uh, called it the accidental profession, and that it was sort of something that you kind of like fell into. Um, I don't think that there are a lot of like kids running around who are like 12 years old saying, gee, I want to be a publicist when I grow up. Or, you know, I want to be sub rights director at Doubleday. You know, it, it, it doesn't really kind of happen that way. I think it's something that you discover later on or it discovers you kind of stumble and uh, find your way into it that way. Um, I uh, came to it uh, stumbling along because I had every intention to get my PhD and teach uh, French lit on the college level, and then of course the bottom fell out of that market, so I had to make a second choice. And thinking of myself as a book person, first and foremost I thought, well gee, publishing this book's there, so why don't I go there and do that? And uh, I, I did do that, that was already oh, well over 15 years ago, and I think that the biggest disappointment that I found when I arrived in publishing was that there were no like color people in the neighborhood. And uh, I think that's probably the one biggest appointment, disappointment that I still do have. Now, of course, you might see us all sitting up here and sort of 
people, Jesus, like all these colored people sitting up here, but this is not a representative sampling. This is a very specially selected sampling. We worked very, very hard to get these wonderful people up here and uh, who have uh, things to share with you. Anyway, um, I'm going to introduce some of the folks, and uh, I thought that we would sort of sort of do a little line progression. And, uh, and should I read this? Oh, it's Walter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even get a no. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, um, uh, uh, you know, sometimes the ball gets rolling because people call literary agents. And they love uh, sending editors projects. And uh, so editors talk with literary agents every day, all the time. And we talk, and we fight, and we negotiate, and we pitch, and we bitch. And then we sort of make up, kiss and make up, uh, over pasta and Chardonnay, and then do it all over again. <laughs> well, Nithi Madan is one of those literary agents, and she's an agent at a uh, wonderful agency, the Charlotte Sheedy Agency. And uh, before that, actually, she was an editor at the Feminist Press. So I think she really knows what it's like to sleep with the enemy, and she's going to talk with us about it. <laughs> so go ahead, take it away. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I'm at the Charlotte Sheedy Literary Agency, and what I do there is I represent writers. I represent them, um, I come up with book ideas, I find new writers, I work with them on their material, um, and then I send them to publishers, and I try to get their work placed at the publishing house. The way I got to the literary agency was, um, let's see, I, I did what most people did. I graduated from college, and I thought, you know, what do I like doing? And I liked books, and I think that's why you find most people in publishing, because you have this just love of literature. Um, and I took the first editorial assistant job I could find. It was in legal publishing. It was a brief, very awful stint in legal publishing. It was tax law publications, I think, and it lasted three months. Um, and then I moved to Feminist Press. I was there for three years. Um, I was a full editor when I left, and I worked on some terrific books, and I really enjoyed them. Um, and in fact, I represent a few of the writers I published there now. Um, then I decided I wanted to play a different role in publishing. I wanted to move into mainstream publishing. I wanted to work on books that were read by uh, more people and by different kinds of people. And I wanted, to be work I wanted to be able to work on the books that I really liked and that I valued and that I wanted to read and that I wanted to see published. Um, and I started thinking about what role I could do that in. And that was a literary agent's role. It was, it was a role where I could really select exactly what I wanted to work on and the people I wanted to work with and get those books published. Um, and that's what I do now. I, I've been doing it for almost two years. I work in an agency that represents about 250 clients. Among them are, they, re, we, they really run the gamut. We do fiction and nonfiction. We do mysteries and literary fiction. We, do, we represent journalists and scholars. Um, among them are people like Marilyn French and Lonnie Lanier. Uh, we represent the estate of Arthur Lord. Uh, we represent the poet and novelist Sapphire, and it's a terrific list, and it's a wonderful place to work. Um, I do have a great relationship with editors, and that's that's fun. You know, you get to work. Everyone you work with when you're a literary agent is very stimulating. You know, the writers are stimulating. They're interesting. You learn something every day. The editors are wonderful, um, and when you find the right editor and you find the right house uh, for a book, it's a great thing. And I don't know. Do, do I have 
No, I think that's great because actually what I think will be really terrific now is that you said you did have a great relationship with editors. I believe that's true, but there's an editor right sitting next to you who might be able to speak to that. And, uh, and that's, <laughs> and then, we just met. <laughs> That's why I can't believe everything you said. <laughs> anyway, Dawn Davis is an editor at, uh, at the New Press. And the New Press is a very interesting uh, house because it's a not-for-profit trade publisher, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, except that these days a lot of us feel that we're not-for-profit <laughs> <laughs> publishers. But anyway, Dawn, why don't you tell us about what you do and how you got to do it. Okay. I'm an acquisitions editor, uh, and I also do subsidiary rights, but in my role as acquisitions editor, I develop book projects. Some of them I actually go out and commission. I think, uh, for instance, I worked on a feminist anthology of black feminist thought, and I, I heard this woman give a lecture. I thought she was great. I approached her. That turned into a book. Sometimes I work with agents. I've actually had submissions from Nithi, so it's nice to uh, be on the panel together. Uh, and I take either a manuscript or a proposal, and I work with it. Um, sometimes conceptually, sometimes actually line editing until it's a finished book and it's sitting on your shelf or you see it in a bookstore. Um, again, because the press that I work at is nonprofit, there is not as much pressure for every book that I acquire to um, sell 100,000 copies. So I can really acquire books based on uh, the merit and the long-term sale. It may not immediately be a bestseller. And that gives me some comfort and all of my remarks today will really, I'll be speaking from that place as opposed to if I worked at um, a much more commercial house. So m my issues when I talk about diversity will be influenced by that. Um, I work on all kinds of books. I've worked on cookbooks. I've worked on this feminist anthology. Um, I've worked on a book on Korean Americans in California. So most of the authors I work with are people of color, not all. Um, and a lot of the issues that I, I deal with um, deal with, and we'll use that problematic term, uh, people of color. <laughs> <laughs> As he leaves the room. <laughs> um, and I'll talk about how I got in the industry. Actually, I was in, right out of college, I worked on Wall Street for two years as a financial analyst, and I really didn't like it at all. Um, probably as much as you disliked working in legal politics. <laughs> uh, I felt no connection at the end of the day with what I was doing, and that was very important to me. So I went and studied literature, and on the plane I actually met a publisher who was working um, with Macmillan in the UK. And the idea that someone worked with books all day just, you know, floored me. I just thought, wow, because I'm from California, and there's very little publishing there, and there was no publishing community that I could say, oh, my friend's mother is an editor or a publicist. So I just it didn't occur to me. And then uh, I studied literature in Nigeria, and when I got back, happened to be at a cocktail party where I met an agent. Uh, and I just kept asking her all these questions, like, you, you mean you get paid to work with books? I can't believe that. <laughs> um, how, you know, I didn't say how could I get in that, but that was the implicit question. And she was so bored with me. Uh, finally, <laughs> she referred me to a colleague of hers who was just starting the new press, and it wasn't even you know publicly announced yet. So it was very serendipitous. I was at the right place, right time. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Well, John Casino uh, is uh, the sort of person whom editors have to work with very, very closely. Uh, once you have uh, really sort of acquired the project and really sort of got it in the shape that you want it to be in, well, then you have to somehow get it produced. 
And uh, so you go to a person who's called the managing editor, and uh, he gets the ball rolling uh, on that, uh, on all of that. I think there's a lot involved he's going to tell you about. Uh, John really has been around. Um, uh, he's uh, worked at a small publisher called Cheap Metal Press. Then he actually sent me a note saying that he also had worked for a medium-sized, distinguished literary house called Worldwide. But apparently he forgot that two regimes ago, Broad Atlantic, where I work, was called Worldwide. It, it was distinguished. <laughs> <before. laughs> and it is distinguished. I helped make it distinguished. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he uh, has worked at Simon Schuster and at Crown and at Random House. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm, as Walter said, I'm the managing editor of Henry, Henry Holt and Company, and my job kicks in when Dawn's job ends. When she's finished with the manuscript, she's finished with editing it, it's time to put it into production. It's time to make it into a book. It's also the time to really rip it apart. It's the time to look at it, look at the, um, look at the details. That's really what my main responsibility is. <coughs> My primary responsibility is the editorial, editorial accuracy of all the books that come that bear the house's name. Any book that has our house's name on it has to have my stamp of approval, basically. And um, we do that through language, using language, and knowing the rules of grammar, punctuation, style, um, in order to ensure that the author's point, whatever information that he wants to convey, is made easily accessible to you. Whatever, whatever message that he has, if it's in a novel, you're going to get it. And that your reading is not at all hindered by poor quality. Where you're not detracted from the information that you're reading because something's misspelled. Or there's a, a, a blatant error in grammar there. Um, the managing editor's job also very much deals with those two words, managing and editing. The editorial, and again, is detail. When it, comes to, when it comes to detail, I mean everything from plot, character, chronology, factual accuracy, if it happens to be in fiction, you know, and someone dies, and someone dies in 1965, the year that President Kennedy was shot, then you know that you've got to really dig deep into this and, and tear it apart. Um, the managing part comes with dealing with all the, various, all the various other people that are working in the book, because the managing editor's job is really the center of information. I might have a publicist call me and say, I'm scheduling an author tour in March. Will books be available? No, I just got that book in February. <laughs> You're not getting that book in March. You can, you can schedule that tour for September. Well, it's not Black History Month in September. All black books don't have to be published in February. That's, that's the bottom line there. Um, you're also managing in-house as well as out-of-house. Um, out-of-house with literary agents, freelancers, be they copy editors, proofreaders, indexers, um, translators, all these different people who are trying to play into the process and want to inform, inform you of what this quality should be. So in one way, we're standard setters. We know the rules, and we know when to break them. <coughs> I'm also a V-boy. Um, I work at Henry Holt. We're a medium-sized publisher. We're medium-sized and distinguished as well. Um, um, we have seven divisions. I, I manage four of them. Some of our authors include Robert Olin Butler, David Levering Lewis, Bell Hooks, Eddie Harris, Sue Grafton, Calvin Tompkins, to name a few. Our backlist includes such distinguished names as James Baldwin, Tony Morrison, William Burroughs, John Edgar Weidman, Dee Brown, 
Louise Erdrich and Michael Doris. Um, how I came to do my job. Talk about your accidental profession. <laughs> I went to a very liberal, liberal, liberal arts college, and it was grueling. It was really, really grueling, as I'm sure many of you are finding your education to be. And I was sitting at home literally a week after graduation, and my roommate's name was John. And the director of student services called John and said, John, I hear there's a, John in publish a job in publishing. Are you interested? <laughs> And I said, yeah, I don't feel like doing this resume. You know, I, I don't, one thing, who has taken a course in how to do a resume? I didn't know the, I didn't know the first thing about putting together a resume. So sure, I want the job. I show up for the interview. This was at Simon & Schuster, my teeth cutting experience. Um, I show up for the interview, I get the job. I call this director of student services to thank her for that. And she said, I met John Magasano, not John Justino. John Magasano is my roommate. Well, lo and behold, <laughs> my best friend, who I lived with at that time, is now is now human rights director for the state of New York, and and I'm managing editor for Henry Hole. Which, which is better? I don't know. I mean, talk about human rights, so you know. Talk about your mission impossibles. Um, and as far as diversity in the industry goes, it, it is very important, and it's a very important topic that we talk about. There's one small story that I'll tell you. Um, that will introduce diversity. It's somewhat, it's somewhat funny, maybe some of you won't find it very funny. <laughs> but in my very first year, actually a very few months, I'm working at Simon & Schuster, and basically I was learning. I was learning my trade. So they gave me absolutely anything and, and everything to do. And I remember I was, um, I think it was slow that day. So they just gave me something to read. Here, sit down and read this and see if you can find the mistakes in it. And it was a, um, it was a baby book, How to Take Care of Your Baby. And I won't mention the title, but it's a very popular book. It's a very, very popular book. And as Walter said, publishing is populated by white people. It really, really is. And very often, the focus of the diversity is lost. And I was working on this book, and it was, it was in the section about your newborn, how your newborn and what to expect. And I'm reading this book, and the description of the newborn said, well, most newborn babies are born with pink skin and blue eyes. Now, I just came out of a very liberal, liberal arts college, and I said, those babies don't look that way in Harlem Hospital. And presented this to, presented this to the editor of the volume, and already six or seven eyes had seen all of that work. And no one ever bothered to question, where are you talking that these babies, where are you, where, from where are you speaking that these babies look? and the author was from Scarsdale. So of course in Scarsdale all babies look that way. Um, but it really did speak to, to the diversity and keeping people informed, keeping people that you work with informed, as well as people who are gonna buy your books. And I think that's really one of the important things that, that we'll discuss today. Well, one of the people whom John works with very, very closely um, is Betty Lou. Betty Lou is a book designer at Holt. And, uh, of course, one of the things that John has to make sure gets done is that the book has really a very appropriate and a very beautiful design. And Betty Lou has worked before at Harcourt and Farrah Strauss and at Rizzoli. And uh, she now works very closely with uh, John and Holt. Betty Lou? Um, like John, I take the book, well, whereas John takes the book and makes sure that it's, um, the words are translated 
and um, it reflects the flavor of the book. I take it and I will try to uh, make the book. Um, I try to make the book more accessible to people visually. Um, if you take a book and you put it side by side, you take two books and you put them side by side, you notice they don't look alike. And um, there are different nuances to the book. And what I do is I try to take a book, <laughs> and I try to translate it uh, visually for everybody. I try to make it inviting so that uh, you want to read it. Um, if you take um, a typewritten manuscript and you looked at it, after a while you would just go, I don't know about you, but I just find that I start phasing out because it's just not very attractive to me. I don't know if it's the design part of me, but um, um, what I do is I try to design, um, try to decide how the book should look. Um, for instance, the title page. Um, I decide, well, how big should the author's name be? If it's an important author, I try to make it a little more, put a little more emphasis on the author. Um, the, the title, if, um, where, should, where should it go, for instance, um, things like that. Um, another thing I do is um, I pick, sometimes I get to pick illustrations for it. Say if, um, if it's a workbook of some sort. What I have to do is look for an illustrator. Maybe if there's a map or something, I have to look for a map maker. Um, I decide what, what kind of art should go in, um, the overall flavor of the book, what it should say to the people, um, try to make it legible. Um, and uh, I try to also, well, um, the, the part of the book that I design is the book itself. There are two parts of design, actually. There's the part where if you have a jacket on the book or the cover, that's another, uh, that's another department. That's the art department, and that's more like marketing. And what I also do with that is I'll take the book, the inside, the interior of the book, and I'll try to make it sort of combine um, what the book of the jacket is saying and what the book is saying in itself. Um, I've worked on novels, biographies, um, workbooks. Um, um, at Rizzoli, I've worked on books, coffee table books, which is um, um, sort of almost a different kind of design in itself because coffee table books deal mostly with pictures and art, and um, there we deal a lot with the author. Sometimes, a lot of times, we'll deal with a lot with the authors just because there is so much art available. And with um, at Rizzoli, we also did a lot of um, um, famous artists like Walter De, Walter de Cunay, um, Roy Lichtenstein, um, uh, people like that, and um, <coughs> they have actually. When we do work with the um, authors, artists themselves, we get a lot of input from them. And what we try to do is we try to um, incorporate what the uh, what the author has uh, or the ideas for the book sometimes, and sometimes even the editors. Um, we, we do get input, although they always don't have the last say. And um, I also work a lot with, uh, with the manufacturing department, where um, we, we decide where to print the book, um, who, who gets to work on the book, what kind of paper we get to use. Um, um, the binding itself, by, by binding I mean, um, you know, um, where, what kind of paper or what kind of cloth that goes on the book. And um, how I got into this field was um, quite by accident, like John. Um, what happened was that um, I'm a I studied in fashion design in high school, 
And I went to an art school in Manhattan thinking, well, I'm gonna be a fashion designer. And in my first year, um, I was just studying basic arts, you know, um, just art history, um, color theory, and things like that. And I had a friend who was a freelance designer, and she was um, actually a designer, she was designing at that time for Harker Burson Jovanovich. And they were looking for somebody to come in and work part-time. Um, they needed help um, just putting together a book, just uh, looking over details and helping, helping out. And um, she called me up and she says, well, do you, do you want to work? You know, do, do you want some work? And I said, sure. You know, not knowing anything about publishing itself uh, and what, go, what, entail, what goes into design and publishing, I said, sure, why not? I thought it would be interesting. And plus, of course, I needed a job. I, you know, I had college and I had art supplies to buy. So um, that's how I started out. Um, I just sort of fell into it. And after that, I said, hey, I like this. I like working with books. I like reading it. And I just like the detail of it, um, just picking out um, how the, book, the font or the type, you know, um, how the book should look, and just picking arts, uh, the, the art board. And even, like I said, sometimes meeting um, the, um, and, and talking to um, the authors themselves, and um, as in case in Rizzoli, just meeting some of the famous artists that we, the biographies we've worked on in, um, with the books. So another happy accident. <laughs> anyway, um, after the book is sort of all wrapped up in a neat and beautiful little package, uh, then the book's got to get published somehow, and that means you've got to get it out there on the street, and that's where publicists come in. And we have a very distinguished one here, that's and Paula Fernandez Rana is a publicist at Anchor Books, which is a uh, imprint at Doubleday, and she's going to talk with us about what she does and how she came to do it. And um, actually, publicity is a very interesting um, place to work in publishing. Publicity is, um, is a piece of the overall marketing plan. And very closely related to publicity is marketing, advertising, and the art department, as was mentioned earlier. Um, publicity and those other groups as a whole are also an extension of sales. And that's why I think publicity is such an interesting place to work really get a feel for what all of those groups do, and there's a certain synergy that exists with all of those groups. Publicity was traditionally, years ago, not since I got into it, but was at one time considered, you know, you throw a few parties, you send the books to the book reviewers, and that's it. Now, every book that's published, you know, stands or falls on marketing and publicity and more and more, and this is the case um, with my situation on Double Day, is that when projects are coming in at the agent level, um, not only does the agent meet with the editor and the author, but now publicity and marketing people are involved as well. Because if you have, a, you, you choose to buy a book that may work at the editorial level, but doesn't work when you need to get out there and promote it and sell it, you know, you, it's not going to work. So more and more, all of those forces are, are being brought into bear when the publishing, when the decision to publish or not to publish is made. So it's a much more synergistic environment. Um, you really get a sense of the whole picture. And it's also an environment where you're encouraged to be very, very creative. The difference between 
marketing, a lot of people ask me the difference between marketing and publicity. And the primary difference is that in publicity, you're dealing with book reviewers, you're dealing with the media, um, you're, you're dealing very directly with the authors. Um, someone mentioned earlier when authors go out on the road and they tour, we do that. We deal very closely with the booksellers and we deal very closely with the sales department. So, um, so publicity has been completely transformed as what it used to be traditionally. Um, I also fell into publishing sort of by accident. And, um, and very happily so. I've been in publishing for about seven years now. And uh, I went to a liberal arts college in the Northeast and um, a university that did not have a publishing program. It's not even an area that I had remotely considered going into. I was a political science and communications major. All I knew was that I wanted to come and work in New York. It didn't matter what it was, I was going to come here and do it. <laughs> and um, within three days of, of coming here, all of a sudden it was like, you know, why didn't I think about this before? And I actually started in magazines. Um, I worked for a short time at Tarkport Grace, and then I worked for Horton Mifflin, uh, both here in the New York office, and I worked in their school division in New York. You know, right now we've been talking about trade publishing. There's a whole other area of publishing, and that's uh, textbooks and the school division of publishing, which is a huge, huge segment of publishing. You just don't, you know, people don't think about it because you think about books and you think about bookstores. Um, and so I worked in the school division for a while, and then, you know, someone had said to me, why is it that everyone that comes to work in the school division always goes running back to trade? And I said, no. <laughs> There is, a, there is a big difference. I mean, a uh, school division is, is a much more academic environment where trade is a much more commercial environment. I work at Doubleday, as was mentioned earlier. Actually, I'm sorry that Walter's not still here because he mentioned Banton Doubleday Dell, where I work. I am Anchor Books publicity director and associate director at Doubleday. And Anchor Books is was traditionally the quality paperback imprint of Doubleday. Uh, it now publishes a lot of hardcover books and a lot of paperback originals. And Anchor's um, reputation has always been a very high quality books and has a very large backlist um, of books by many African American writers and Asian American writers and have a huge women's studies section and um, again lesbian women. So there's a whole you know, real mosaic of books that are published at Anchor. So as far as the issue of diversity, it's one that's been um, very important to me, especially in the last several years, that I've taken more of an active role there. And again, as someone had mentioned earlier, without that diversity, you're not able to make informed decisions. Because we get involved in the publishing process so much earlier on, that time of informed decision is that much more important. So it's something that I've been trying personally to work very hard um, you know, to bring into my environment at Doubleday. And um, I just want to hear tonight. Well, now when all of this sort of clicks in the most perfect way possible, you know, and everything's working and you're really flying, it's just possible that a book club will want to take the book for its members. And uh, actually, our last panelist is Juanita James. And Juanita James is Senior Vice President, responsible for editorial 
of the Book of the Month Club. There are 11 book clubs at the Book of the Month Club. She has a huge, huge job, and she's going to tell us about it and how she came to it. I'll tell you first how I came to it. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, grew up in New York City, attended the Catholic school educational system, and eventually won a scholarship both to high school, because at the time we had regent scholarships, and then to Princeton University. Where I majored first in French, no, first in math, and then ultimately in French, thinking that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, upon graduating from college, I went to work for a French electronics <laughs> buying chemicals and semiconductors and exporting them to Paris. <laughs> and I stumbled into publishing because one of my roommates from college worked at Time Life Books, which was um, a continuity, and still is a continuity book publisher, based in New York at one point, and then moved to Alexandria, Virginia. So I started at Time Life, or Time Incorporated, 20 years ago in 1976 at Time Life Books. And have spent the past 20 years first in the editorial department as a researcher, um, then went into corporate finance, and then I went into human resource management, then I ran a telemarketing division, and uh, now I am running the editorial group for all of the book clubs that comprise Book of the Month Club. I um, sort of want to focus my my comments on what to expect from a career in publishing. And I can say that my 20-year career in publishing has been one of really mixed and conflicting emotions and experiences throughout the 20 years. On one hand, there is the experience of being surrounded by and working with people who have an intense, passionate interest and belief in what they do. People who love books, who love the printed word, who love learning and creativity, um, identifying with what it is that you're creating and producing. And there's a tremendous amount of enjoyment and enrichment in doing that. And a sense that one is somehow influencing um, American culture by being a part of the publishing experience. And I initially got into publishing because I felt, actually Walter did much of the speech that I would give, except very much of his own very unique Walter-like style. Um, but I felt that I was working in an industry where I could make an impact about on how we perceive ourselves and how the American culture perceives people of color. Um, the, the, the bad part of that is that being in an industry that is on the surface, open-minded, liberal, progressive, um, with charming, um, very intelligent people, and yet underneath there are so many walls and so many barriers and so many preconceived notions about who you are and where you come from. And you know, all of the stereotypes exist. If you're Asian, you're naturally good at science and technology. If you're Hispanic, you like to dance and you like to laugh. If you're African American, you're an angry person. Probably was attended by 30,000 people. I could count on one hand 
the number of brown faces that I saw in this entire group, um, where you find yourself being a person who educates others about culture and who is constantly trying to help people uh, learn to be a little bit more sensitive about human issues and where you're looking for common ground so people see you as another individual and another human being and you connect with each other on a human level and at the same time you want your distinctive voice and your unique experiences to be brought to the table. Um, the reason I am still in publishing, even though every year I consider getting out of publishing, because I think the frustration, unfortunately, does not decrease over time, it just increases over time. And I work for an organization that has so much of an influence about what is published and how things are published. And the Book of the Month Club itself is very much an icon of American culture, and it is a reflection of American culture. And for an organization that had said itself, this is an institution that is 70 years old this year. Um, and it is remarkably one-sided in terms of how it reflects American culture. So I sort of use my influence to try to broaden people's perspectives, but it doesn't get any easier. And I think it is important for us to have diversity because it is important for us to wrap this mosaic and weave it in a very positive fashion of what is the American culture. And as long as we are institutions that provide the input, that influence the way people see us, the way we see ourselves, and all of those images are either so narrowly defined, um, you have to do what you can to, I think, influence that to broaden the perspective and to, to find some unifying themes. Um, but the isolationism is really a, a matter that I think is very still strongly felt. I have one African-American editor in my entire staff of 40 people. And this is someone who is incredibly talented, has a broad range of interests, but yet any title that is published by or about you know, black Americans goes to this person and she automatically becomes the expert because she's the only one. This is a problem. Her interests are you know, in spirituality, history, and science. She has a broad range of interests, and yet she's the only person who can also represent the African-American interests. It puts enormous pressure on any individual to have to represent their entire race in any kind of institution. Um, the same is true for um, a young Asian editorial assistant who actually just told me she's leaving because it was, she would like to go into an environment where it's more comfortable. And our environment is not comfortable for people who are different. And in the case of different, it's, um, it is still very much, as Walter said, so dominated by an, a European orientation to language, to culture, to writing, to style, to dress style, to the way one expresses oneself, to the way you carry yourself that you know, anyone who is different feels a sense of having to prove themselves constantly. Um, I remember once making the observation, this was in 1980 when I was a human resources vice president and trying to create some uh, sensitivity for diversity. I said one of the biggest problems we face in this company, and at the time I was talking about time-life books, but I can say the, the same thing you said in the book of the month club, 
and probably many other um, publishing houses as well, is that a young white employee coming in, entering the organization, is assumed to be competent until proven otherwise. A young black person coming into the organization is assumed to be incompetent until proven otherwise. And it sets up a pattern of what types of assignments you get, what kinds of exposure you get, whether you get pulled or assigned to the task forces that give you a lot of visibility, whether or not you have credibility or credibility coming to the table. And it's a very frustrating experience to go through an entire career feeling that way. I'm one of the senior executives in my organization, and to this day, I still feel that there are times that when I say we should do something, it's immediately discounted because they think I'm looking at it oh, from a black perspective. Mm -hmm. you know, if I have a diverse staff, I have uh, men, women, gay people, straight people, old people, young people, Asians, whites, you know, African-American, but yet if I champion, if I make a decision to hire someone who's black or finger at it, I know it comes into question as to is this person really qualified? Or is one just trying to do something, you know, is she favoring this person because they're black? That question never comes up when I hire a white male for the job. So you're always judged by a double standard. So I say, you know, the reason, the only way this will change is if there is more diversity. If more people You're so good. <laughs> what a finale. Uh, I, you aren't so super good at it. And I, uh, gee, well, anyway, I think that uh, uh, if you guys sort of saw last uh, Sunday's New York Times magazine, you sort of know that publishers just love memoir, we love personal identity and personal transformation, and we love, <coughs> excuse me, when 
people get like really down and dirty. <laughs> so that means that now's your chance to ask any of us anything that you want, anything that's on your mind. We really would love to talk with you and to answer your questions as fast and as honestly as we possibly can. I think that given a lot of things you've heard here, you know we'll be honest. So does anyone have any questions for us? Yeah. yeah. Listening to you perfectly weave together all of your panelists' experiences from the editor, the book designers, the managing editors, and what possibly do you feel? I like to just say that I'm one who sort of fell into publishing. I started working as an editorial assistant and moved forward to a production system. And then my final semester of studying accounting currently interviewing with a couple of publishers in the industry, and which is part of the reason I'm down here, to get perspectives and um, feedback from our panelists and audience. Uh, I'd like to know if I could get an answer from the panelists. Over the next 10 years, do you see this diversity changing? Because the publishing house that I was at is a consumer advocacy function, and I had a very good experience there. Ironically, um, there was diversity within our workers there. And I left there on good terms. I'd like to continue in culture. However, I would like some insight into where I might end up with a background such as mine, which is accounting. And also, um, if it is something that might be ultimately worth the fight. Well, um, I, uh, that's a, a really tough question. I think that probably in the end, we would all say, yeah, it is worth the fight. And you seem like a fighter, and it would be great to have you on our side fighting. And uh, so whatever that means to you, well, it, it means something to us. It means something to me to hear you talking. Um, I uh, uh, think that, uh, you know, in, in terms of your own background in accounting, you would have to sort of look at the various areas of publishing. One area of publishing that's not represented by the panel is the business side. And the business side is crucial, actually, to us all. Um, and uh, the business side has an enormous impact on every area that we all here represent. And uh, the business side in publishing is a very creative side, or at least it's a creative side when it's done well. And uh, I think that you might want to look at that um, as one area. Um, I think that in terms of you sort of fighting the fight and what's going to happen in the next 10 years, you know, I don't want to pass the buck, but we need some help. And part of the reason why we're here, you know, talking with you guys, and I'm talking about all of you, I'm talking about everyone in here, and, I'm, and that means that all of the, the many white folks are in here too, we need people coming into this industry who are coming to it with a new consciousness. And I think that if we're ever going to be able to sort of make changes here, and if anyone either is not going to have to be saying the same things for another 15 years, it's going to be because we get some help from some other people who maybe want to say, okay, well, in the 60s, you know, my parents had to like do a lot of this, and they had to really fight and fight. And of course, I didn't expect that I was going to have to do that in the 90s, but I'm going to have to. And uh, because this is like a retro industry, right? Remember? And uh, I think that's what I have to say to you, but. Uh, but I also think that the, the landscape is changing because there are more books being published. Um, uh, Chang Ray Lee, we just had lunch, we just won the Pulitzer Prize for his uh, memoirs about 
of his novel about Korean Americans in New York. And you see more um, different types of books from various cultures hitting the bestsellers. Once the publishing community starts to see that these books sell, that books about Asians, about African Americans, about you know Hispanics, that novels and nonfiction, and it's not just one genre, it's not just Tony Morrison, but there's room on the landscape for Tony Morrison and Terry McMillan and um, Tina, Tina Anson, that's right. <laughs> you know, once you start saying that, the reason publishers are publishing these books is because they're selling and people are buying them. And so I think there's just uh, an awareness that you know there's a business, there's a market, and therefore I think the landscape will change as far as being an openness and receptivity to more diversity within the, the publishing houses who actually create books. So I, I'm very hopeful that it will be a much more positive environment moving forward than it has been for the last 20 years. Um, I would just add, and I certainly want to give other folks chances to, uh, to ask and to answer questions, but uh, of course, one of the things that I think a number of us feel very strongly here is that we have to convince the publishers any way that we can that this is a business matter that it's not a question of what's ethically right, or morally right, or even socially or culturally correct. It's a business matter, and it's what is good for business, and that if this does not change, it's going to be desperately bad for business in many ways. Are there other questions? as I mentioned earlier, is that the publicity person primarily deals with the media. Um, the marketing person does get involved in no. advertising or special promotions. Um, um, special promotions and cross-promoting with the booksellers. Um, trying to think of an, of an example of a campaign that we did. For example, we did a campaign with Susan Taylor, uh, who's, as most of you know, as, as Essence's editor-in-chief. And we did a special contest with the bookstores to encourage them to create um, window displays of her book in their windows. And if they did this display and they kept it up for a certain period of time and they sent us in a photograph, you know, they would get $50. So special contests, all kinds of special promotional ideas to involve the booksellers um, in the books, um, mailings to special organizations and groups. So, so that does, does that explain to you, sort of? So that kind of a, everything that doesn't involve that's promotional that doesn't involve the media really falls into the bailiwick of marketing. Uh, marketing will also get involved if we're doing a radio ad for a book, or special posters, or you know those kinds of more merchandise, chachkas merchandise. Um, <coughs> special sales kits to the sales to the uh, booksellers, that sort of thing. Other questions? I have a, yeah, okay. So well, I actually wanted to ask uh, Mr. Nadia a question about uh, the conversation we had earlier about uh, there's a kind of day-to-day life of a literary agent. What exactly? Well, I guess I should have a question in reverse. difficult uh, when, when acquiring languages and writing, what is it that just really turns them off? 
Um, well, what, what, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, Adinkin's job is difficult, I mean, just because it's such an enormous job. Because there's there's so much material, and there's so much to read, and there's so much to know, and there's so much to do. Um, but I think if any of it gets turned off by that job, they probably don't want it. Um, so I, I mean, I think I think when a writer is looking for an agent, and um, they're disappointed when someone doesn't take them on, you know, doesn't uh, decide to represent them. Um, I understand there's a disappointment there, but you know what? You don't want to be represented by someone who doesn't read your book and say, I'm so crazy about this, I can go out there and, and make it one of the ones that's going to get published. I can, you know, put 110% behind it um, and I can go to the wall for it because that's what you need. That's how hard it is to get a book published. Um, and I, so what turns you on? I don't know. Um, form letters turn you on? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> Not too much. Not too much. I like it. I like it when people call. I like it when people write. I like it when they send their stuff in. I, you know, when they stop you on the street or, or uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, you're you're out there looking for great material. You're, you know, you're not trying to run from people. Usually, I'm willing to take your number. I get calls all the time. Take that to me. Certainly has, it certainly has increased um, the number of the number of people fit into a particular ethnic group. Really, do has increased from my experience of ten years ago. Um, I don't, but I in that in that growth, I don't think it's been limited to the service departments. I don't think it's been limited to necessarily production or manufacturing. I think there is a bit more. There is. Don't get me wrong, there's still a serious lack. There's a bit more in editorial and in publicity and in, in, in the managing editor's department. Um, and as Juanita was saying, these are things that we really do have to strive and seek out just to, to break the mold, to make it, to, to just make it a better profession. Um, I've always thought that I do what I do because I want to inform and entertain. You can't just do that in one way. Um, so to answer your question, yeah, it, it, I think it has gotten, I think it has gotten, but it, I don't think they're limited just to service departments. But it's funny, you know, Betty Lucas, when you and I were talking, you were saying that there, I mean, given a very, very tiny number of Asians in business, that there were usually large number well, of in, uh, in design especially. Yeah. I, I've worked both in production manufacturing and design, and um, when you compare it to the rest of the, um, like, editorial and... Um, and just production editorial, there are quite a, there are a lot more uh, minorities, as um, let's put it that way, in the design field and production field, the manufacturing field. And um, I I myself um, know quite a few 
um, freelancers and just working from house to house that there are quite a few designers that are um, of color and there are um, there are quite a few people um, who actually fall into it by going into design and in production and they just make some kind of change or lateral change go from one department to another but, um, yes I think editorial though is still the area that it is toughest to break into um, and, and part of that is because everyone wants to go into editorial so there's much more competition for those jobs I think some of it has to do with the fact that the industry itself is very small and they sort of pride themselves on being a family. But the problem of being a family is that you also can be very close to outsiders and it's hard to break inside that family circle. Um, the other point I want to make, David, is that even though entry-level publishing jobs don't pay very much money and middle-level publishing jobs also don't pay very much money, there's very much a star system in the publishing industry. And your top level, high profile, senior editors, editorial directors, editors in chief, um, acquisition editors with like these big names, they make a tumble of money. So it's a very. <laughs> <laughs> those that very make them and those that buy them. It's really, <laughs> really true. It's a very small, tight circle of people who are making a tumble of money. And they kind of don't want you to know that. Um, because that's why it's so much harder to kind of break into that level where you're really, you know, profiting from, from this industry. But if we could just maybe talk about numbers, I know there's some other publishing professionals in here, and I may be wrong, but I think I can count on less than two hands how many editors of color work in trade publishing in New York. And at lunches, um, working with production managers, there are quite a few people um, either in production or um, design or who work for you know the, the printing house or the people who sell the paper. So in production, you do see people of color. If you go to a publishing function and you're looking for another editor of color um, at a party, for example, you're going to be spending <laughs> a lot of time <laughs> searching. <laughs> yeah. Very stress-filled. 
when people burn out quickly. And generally, um, I'm not looking for somebody who has an Ivy League education. Um, it's fine if you do, and I think you're the best person for the job, but that is not my first criteria. I'm looking for somebody who's smart, who has a lot of energy, who really wants to learn, uh, can do multiple things at once, um, and who can really, who has very, very good interpersonal skills. You're gonna be dealing with so many different people, you're constantly switching gears, constantly switching gears. You do need to have good writing skills, but you know, you don't have to be a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, so, um, so, so just really good, solid, basic skills. And as long as I, you know, sense that this person really wants to be here and um, self-motivated and can really do something with it, that, that's really all you need. Um, at least from, you know, publicity or marketing. From an editorial perspective? Mm -hmm. um, we're looking for people who are very curious, who want to work really hard, and who will do it without an attitude. An editorial assistant's position, there is a lot of facts in and Xeroxing and work that doesn't particularly feel very gratifying, even though you're in this kind of intellectual environment. And you can sense, or you think you can sense, whether or not when you're interviewing, whether or not someone will do, you know, photocopy a 600-page manuscript without an attitude. That's really important, because I need, to, I need to rely on my assistant to do it in good humor. It's a lot of hard work. You work together, you know, long hours, and you want to feel that you get along with someone. And also, if you are going on an interview or if you're thinking about applying, research the kind of company that you're working for. There are dozens of companies out there. Don't go to a house that doesn't publish fiction and say, oh, I really love fiction and I want to work on fiction. <laughs> and I've had people do that. And you sit there after the interview, you know, two minutes into the interview, and you think, this is not going to end quick enough because it's going to do your research. You know? What I'm looking for, since I deal with details, I'm looking for meticulousness. And the resume and the cover letter is the very first, it's the very first entrance in the door. Um, my advice on that end is, Get someone to read it for you. Do it, finish it, polish it, hone it. And then get someone else to read it. And then get somebody else to read it, <laughs> a third person. Because if I pick up a resume knowing that I'm working on the written, I'm working with the written word, and I find errors in it, you're, you're out, it's discounted. As, as Manita said, the competition yes, is so, so tough. So, so tough. Words on them. Mm -hmm. And Don't another big, another piece of advice, there are just a few, I mean, when it comes to resumes and cover letters, there are just a few really common sense things that a lot of people don't think about. Call the receptionist to confirm the spelling of the person's name to whom you're sending <laughs> I get my, mis my name spelled so many different ways. Um, also, all men are not working. All men are not the only people receiving letters. It's not dear sir anymore. Dear sir or madam, to whom it may concern. Um, Present yourself in that letter as you would present yourself as a person as well. There's a very general basic rule in copy editing, or even in writing. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Um, it's, very, it's really, really that simple. Once you get in the door and once you get that phone call back, there are other things that, there are other things that you do. It's presentation on your own part. Um, and really putting yourself out there. And for each of you, that would, that would, be, really, that would be very different. But, all of us are dealing with the written word, and that meticulousness on paper is very, very important. Very, very important. Not just in my area, but in all areas. The book club business is probably the hardest business to get into, um, partially because I have very little turnover on my staff. 
and the entire publishing industry tends to apply for jobs when there is an opening, and that rare occasion is always. Because once you get into the club, you get to see everything that is being published, you know, everything that publishers, whether it's independent presses, university presses, big trade publishers, you get to canvas the entire industry. So the jobs are very, very competitive. Um, we rarely have entry-level positions open. When we do have them, we probably get thousands of resumes for one position just by adding, you know, placing one on it. Um, we recently had an experience where we had an editorial assistant open in our original publishing group, and as part of the screening process, we had people take a test. And because these editors have to be very knowledgeable, there was a lot of grammar on these tests. And I think 25 people took the test, including people who had master's degrees from Yale and other Ivy League universities. And there are only two people who passed it. And one of them is sitting here in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a very, you know, it's a very tough bar getting into the club. Um, and I don't think that's going to change just because the market is such that, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's one of those questions where in our case it's really a buyer and for design, um, it really helps if you have a design background, but it's not actually necessary. Um, we have people who actually are were from production and expressed an interest to get into design, and they said, hey, you know, I like what you do, and I think it's fun, and I think I can do it. And um, we have people who came over from the marketing department and who expressed interest. And what you need is to, you just need somebody who's willing to take you under their wing and to show you what to do and how to do it, what to look for. It's also very detail-oriented. We have to look for details. And it helps also if you have a good eye. But um, when, you, when you go into it, you don't start out as a designer. You start out as an assistant on some sort. You, uh, you Xerox. You know, it seems like almost every job now you have to Xerox. You have to do legwork. And you, um, I didn't really start out. I didn't go bang here. I'm a designer. You know, when I first came out of college there, you know, um, I had to pay my dues. I, I went into production to learn more about production because that also helps too. And um, I just worked closely with a lot of other designers and I just picked up wherever I can. But um, like I said, it also helped that I also I had a, um, a formal training in design. Um, can I tell you what yes, please. <laughs> yeah, please. Um, well, I, I actually hired an assistant recently and we got a ton of resumes too. Um, and you know, I, I'm fine with people not knowing what a literary agent does because why would you? Um, and so I'm kind of explaining everything. But it's so useful to go in there um, prepared and to have, you know, read Publishers Weekly for a couple of weeks. No matter where you interview, they're going to say to you, "What have you read recently? You know, what books have you read? And what did you enjoy? And you know, um, what sort of stuff?" So it's it's good to kind of go in there prepared. We look for people with a lot of energy, a lot of ambition, someone who wants my job. Um, someone who, who would just work a lot and, you know, it's, it's a lot of support work. It's a lot of answering phones and faxing and making copies and sending stuff out and reading every night and reading on the weekends and writing these reports. Um, but everything you do at a literary agency teaches you something. And I think that's true, actually, in most people's offices. Every, every letter you write and every piece of paper you fax to someone and every phone call you take, you talk to everyone, you know. I, I mean, you're talking to editorial directors and they get to know you, you talk to every client. So um, I, I think an agency is actually a really great place to start out, obviously. 
So now you're probably really all about Eve thing. My name is Gloria, and uh, I'm writing. And I came here like with this little spying idea. You know, it's like I want to come in here, and I want to get the publishers, and I want to find out what you think. Mm -hmm. You know, but like you all said, everybody said they kind of fell into this this career. Mm -hmm. You know, and like what's happening to me is that okay, I write, 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 but then I stick it in the drawer. Okay. And what I found is that every job that I've ever gone on, I've, I've worked like a lot of places, every single one of them has a newsletter because I've created a newsletter everywhere I go. I've got these newsletter droppings all over the place. <laughs> I'm telling you. And everything that you guys are talking about doing, you know, from the designing and the, the layout and the publishing, you know, it's like I do all that in my little world. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? In my own little world. And the reason why I start doing it, the reason why I start publishing this newsletter is because I love writing so much and I hear what you have to say and I want to share what you have to say with the rest of the world so hey, let's get a newsletter going, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, as I'm listening to you guys, it's like I haven't fell, but I feel like I'm falling. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I feel like I'm falling. You know, I feel like I'm falling into publishing, you know. But I'm like trying to hold on to this, this idea I have for writing. So it kind of transposes, you know, in all these newsletters that I keep publishing and publishing, you know, then I write a little bit here and I write a little bit there. So my question, I think, is that transposition kind of thing true in the real world? Yes, you know? yes, that happens a lot. I think that there are, I mean, for one, you sound like a real publisher. I mean, you've got the real publishing bug, you know, when you're talking about <laughs> newsletters. And there are a lot of publishers uh, who also have a kind of writing bug. And there are a lot of writers who you know, like Toni Morrison was an editor uh, before she was a writer. Actually, she was an editor for a while when she was a, a novelist. And uh, and I was talking with her not and she was saying, well, you know, in a lot of ways, I still think of myself as an editor. And uh, so that uh, it is possible to bring the two together, I mean, it's especially with people who are now sort of starting their own publishing companies, you know, and there are a lot of books that are, uh, uh, a lot of work that's self-published, a lot of books that come from very small publishers that grow. We're also seeing a phenomenon now where big publishers are picking up books from very, very small publishers that have suddenly been extremely successful. You know, and someone said, I can't deal with these big houses, I'm gonna do it myself, I'm gonna do my own thing. And went ahead and did it, it was a great success. It's like, do you wanna get in on that now? Here's a new idea, we certainly aren't coming up with that many. And uh, so yeah, it's not, there's no contradiction just maybe have to work even that much harder. You know, we've talked a lot about the, 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 the photocopying and the carrying home of the heavy manuscripts and reading till all hours and nights. So, you know, I think you're getting the impression about 75% of this job is kind of, you know, tough, hard, detailed work. And there's the 25% that's all around. It's, you know, going to parties and you can hang out every single night if you're in the publishing industry and go to various, you know, author signings, book signings, openings of this party, you know, um, yes, meeting famous authors. I mean, it, there, there's an element of glamour to it, and I think a lot of people come into the industry looking for that glamour piece, and they don't realize that with it comes this other part that's just not.
been a publishing program at the university where I went, I would have definitely gone. Um, it just was not available to me at that time, and so publishing as a career didn't occur to me until I came to New York, and then it became very obvious that this is what I wanted to do. But I've had um, a number of assistants that have come from the Radcliffe Publishing course, and the course in Denver, and I think there's one at NYU, and, um, and they've all felt that it's benefited them. It's at least set things up for them so they know what to expect when they come into the publishing house, because otherwise, like I said, I, I interview and I hire a lot of people, and, and most of the people that I see um, have no sense of the big picture. Um, and they're just, and they're not sure if they want publicity or they kind of want editorial. And yeah. So the people that get those publishing programs get really good overviews. So you, you, you know what else? I think it's a definite plus when yeah. people yeah. actually have gone through publishing. I mean, it's a plus from my perspective if I see it on a resume. And I taught in a couple of these programs, and it is a tremendous, it's a wonderful. I think it helps them be more focused. You know what else it does? It helps you, you have peers at different firms, and there's nothing like being able to call up a friend and say, what do you think of this idea um, as a proposal? How would you market this? There's something, and if being um, an African-American woman starting out in the industry, I didn't have peers who I could call different houses and say, is this a dumb idea, or isn't this the most exciting thing in the world? So, or even meet them for drinks and say, oh my God, you will never believe it. My boss asked me for the fifth time if I read Essence, of course, you know. <laughs> so um, I think that that's really important to have that kind of peer group, which you get in a program which you don't necessarily get. But those programs are expensive, and I don't think that they're the only way to enter publishing. You can do internships where you can wait tables at night and volunteer um, to be an intern at a publishing program if you can't get a paying internship. So but some of those programs have scholarships, too. Mm -hmm. They offer scholarships as well. So it's not, they are expensive, but you can get a Sometimes I feel it is tougher for me to do my job because I have so much other baggage that I have to deal with. I have to deal with overcoming, you know, preconceived notions. And in addition to that, because there are so few of us, we are all tapped by everyone. I probably get 40 to 50 telephone calls a day from people who want help. They want to network, they're looking for a job, they're looking to get published, they're looking for an agent, they'd like me to speak, you know, at a panel, they'd like me 
be a volunteer, they might be a bystander. And, and I think the handful of us who have, you know, kind of gotten it, we get that kind of pressure. And it would be easier if there were more of us, there would be more people to sort of spread the wealth around, to be mentors, to support young people coming up, to, you know, really bounce ideas off of each other. So it, it does make it a little bit tougher because you can't, it's not just that you have to do your job. You know, you have to do the job which is, you know, the job that they are paying you to do. And then, you know, you have an obligation to help, you know, bring other people in to support some other people. And sometimes your colleagues, your peers at work, don't understand that. I mean, they think I'm fooling around all the time because my phone rings so much. Uh, they fought uh, like cats and dogs 
for four or five years against a very male uh, uh, establishment in Latin America that uh, didn't want to deal, didn't want to hear anything about women. And they just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing. And now it's the most important book fair in Spanish language. And you do that because you push and you push, but you also pool your resources. And you're, you know, terrific. And uh, not now, but maybe 10 years down the line, uh, you might have all the resources ready to be pooled. Well, I'll tell you, David, we've got some not-so-secret plans, and they are not so terribly unlike some of the things you're talking about. Good. And uh, so, yeah, so we're working on it. Thank you.